Righteousness. Conformity to the divine law. God measures differently than does man. Being righteous before God may not mean the same thing one thinks righteousness means. Man wants outward signs, symbols, dress, grooming, and conformity. God looks at the intent of the heart. Righteousness comes by obedience. Obedience requires action. Without conforming conduct to the Lord's commandments, it is impossible to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Rights Belonging to the Fathers Melchizedek inherited from his father the right of dominion that was originally given by God to Adam. He was the father over all mankind and in that capacity was a king or a ruler, though he exercised that right given to him as did Adam, as a father figure and not as a tyrant. Abraham came to him to obtain this same right belonging to the first fathers or the right that descended from Adam. This is the rights belonging to the fathers which Abraham was so overjoyed to have obtained because he was then the rightful father of many nations by reason of his position in the family of God. This, however, did not confer authority that was respected or acknowledged by men in that day, but it was respected by God. See also the glossary entry, The Fathers. Rock the Book of Mormon contains Christ's gospel. It also contains his rock and his salvation. What is the rock contained within it? The better translation of Christ's colloquy with Peter would have included the Lord identifying Peter not as a rock but as a seer stone. And upon the stone or seership would the Lord build his church. The Book of Mormon is more a Urim and Thummim than a book. It is a tremendous source of subject matter upon which to ponder, oftentimes drawing a veil at critical moments while inviting the reader to ponder, pray, and ask to see more. Used in that fashion, the Book of Mormon can open the heavens and make any person a seer. The words of a prophet are best understood by another prophet. If one can come to understand the Book of Mormon's words, he or she can become a prophet, or more correctly, a seer before whom scenes of God's dealings with mankind, past, present, and future, will be put on display. Another way to interpret the rock is found in 18 verses, page 49, which discusses the meaning of 1 Nephi 1, paragraph 3. The meaning of the rock, Maat, before Lehi, who wrote in Egyptian and would therefore understand meanings, was the stone of judgment, the symbol of truth, which signifies reality on one hand and light on the other. Facsimile 2, figure 4 in the book of Abraham, for example, shows the image of the Horus hawk atop a rock and on the heavenly boat. Mankind has its own symbolic meanings associated with a rock. One of the clearest is Christ's declaration that his names include the title Rock of Heaven. In vision, Enoch saw and heard the Lord declare, I am the Messiah, the King of Zion, the Rock of Heaven, Genesis 4, paragraph 20. The rock upon which we build is the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. There is abundant evidence of other gods and of goddesses. It is beyond dispute that the image of God includes both male and female. It is inescapable, therefore, that the God we worship includes a father and a mother. 
However, we are only to seek after the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost as the rock upon which our salvation is to be built. See also the glossary entry, Cephas. Ruach There are instances in which Hebrew uses the feminine directly to describe God. For example, the Spirit of God, Ruach Elohim, Ruach Elohim. is a feminine noun. Likewise, when referring to the presence of God, Hebrew uses the feminine. The word Shekinah was coined as a proper noun to replace a phrase literally meaning he caused to dwell. That phrase is better understood to convey the presence of God and therefore the word Shekinah was adopted. God's presence includes the feminine. Ruach means breath, wind, spirit. Joseph Smith expands our insight into the word, and the KJV, the seventh verse of chapter 2 of Genesis, ought to read, God breathed into Adam his spirit or breath of life. But when the word Ruach applies to Eve, it should be translated lives. See Genesis 2, paragraph 11. It appears that into Adam was breathed the breath of life. Into Eve, however, was breathed the breath of lives. Ruler A teacher of truth We were spirits before we were born, Abraham 6, paragraphs 1 to 3. We were all there when some were chosen to be rulers, or in other words, teachers. To rule is to be responsible to teach all those in one's dominion. A ruler is a teacher responsible for instructing others. See 1 Nephi 1, paragraph 9. The account in Genesis explains that Eve, and by extension her daughters, was put under Adam's rule. Adam was handed responsibility and accountability for Eve. These are the words in the parable. Thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Genesis 2, paragraph 18. Adam was made accountable to rule in the fallen world. All the mistakes, mismanagements, failings, wars, and difficulties of mortality are the responsibility of the appointed ruler. Adam would not have been accountable for Eve unless she was made subject to his rule. Once under Adam's rule, the redemption of Adam became also the redemption of Eve. Therefore, Adam and the sons of Adam and Eve and the daughters of Eve were all rescued through Christ's atonement for mankind. In the Book of Mormon, the term ruler was synonymous with teacher. See, for example, Jacob 1, paragraph 2. In Paul's epistle to the Hebrews, the use of the word rule in context means the assigned role to teach. Remember them who have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God. Hebrews 1, paragraph 59. He repeats it twice, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. For they watch for your souls as they who must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief. Hebrews 1, paragraph 61. Salute all them that have the rule over you, and all the saints. Hebrews 1, paragraph 64. See also the glossary entry, Teach. Sabbath Day a day set apart by the Lord as a remembrance of the creation and his redemptive power. See Exodus 12, 
paragraph 7 and Deuteronomy 2, paragraph 10. During the creation, God established a plan for six days of labor and one day of rest. That one day of rest was to be continually observed and would later be memorialized in the law of Moses. But on that first day of rest, Adam and Eve were sent out from the Garden of Eden, and instead of resting, they labored. The reckoning of the week was disturbed by the fact that a day was lost, and the calendar resulted in a day's disparity because of the fall of Adam and Eve. Christ was resurrected on what was called the first day of the week because it was the first day of the week as reckoned from the fall of Adam. Christ's atonement was intended to fix the fall of Adam, to put everything back right again, and to repair the damage that had been caused. Therefore, even though Christ's resurrection appears to have come one day late, it was actually just on time. He repaired not only the damage done in the original fall, but he repaired the Sabbath as well. Hence the day of resurrection was observed as the day of rest and was called the first day of the week instead of the seventh because that's how time had been reckoned from the fall of Adam until the resurrection of Christ. Many observe the Sabbath on the day on which Christ was resurrected as a symbol of his repair of the premature fall and the loss of the original day of rest going back to the time of Adam and Eve. The original Christians would let one worship on Saturday and would let another worship on Sunday because as long as one kept the doctrine of Christ and accepted the law of Christ, men and women could figure it out together over time and eventually one would persuade the other, perhaps not by argument and debate, but by the quiet example that persuades the heart that there is something more to be preferred in one than in the other. On Sunday, August 7, 1831, the Lord gave instructions about the Sabbath. And that you may more fully keep yourself unspotted from the world, you shall go to the house of prayer and offer up your sacraments upon my holy day. For verily, this is a day appointed unto you to rest from your labors and to pay your devotions unto the Most High. Nevertheless, your vows shall be offered up in righteousness on all days and at all times, but remember that on this, the Lord's day, you shall offer your oblations and your sacraments unto the Most High. TNC 46, Paragraph 3 The following November his command was restated, and the inhabitants of Zion shall also observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. TNC 55, Paragraph 6 it is noteworthy that immediately following the command to teach one's children, there is a warning to observe the Sabbath day to keep it wholly consecrated, set apart, distinct from other days. The Lord gives mankind agency in keeping the Sabbath day holy. Circumstances for one may be different from another, and it is not meet that he command in all things. Men should be anxiously engaged in a good cause and do many things of their own free will and bring to pass much righteousness. TNC 45, Paragraph 6 Sacrament, Lord's Supper Christ instituted the sacrament during the Passover meal. It was his last supper with his closest followers. All the accounts agree on the purpose, to remember the body and blood he would sacrifice on behalf of mankind. When the Lord appeared to the Nephites, he proclaimed he had fulfilled the law. See 3 Nephi 7, paragraph 2. 
All the rites and sacrifices added through Moses pointed to his great sacrifice of his body and blood. The purpose of the sacrament is to remember Christ, his body that was broken to fulfill the required sacrifice, and his blood that was shed for man's redemption. When the bread is broken and blessed, those who qualify, by having repented and been baptized, receive it as a gift or token from Christ. It is his body. This is to be done in remembrance of his body. Moroni 4, Paragraph 1 it is through his body that he, the living sacrifice, shows the way to all. A loving God has died for us. His body is a testimony of life, obedience, sacrifice, cruelty, forgiveness, death, resurrection, immortality, power, and glory. When you remember his life, you should remember all that is associated with it. When the Lord visited the Nephites, he commanded that they should eat, 3 Nephi 8, paragraph 6. This is more than an invitation. It is more than an offering. It is a commandment. What is it about partaking of his sacrament, eating in remembrance of the body of Christ, that must be done? Why would people who had seen, touched, and knelt at the feet of the risen Lord need to partake of the bread as a witness and remembrance of him? How did this add to what they had already received? Why is the sacrament sacred enough to be celebrated by the Lord with people who are in his very presence? When people share food with one another, they become part of the same material. When a meal is shared, life is shared. They become one of the same substance. The substance which binds the followers of Christ is that which symbolizes the body of Christ. Christ broke the bread before it was blessed. What does breaking the bread symbolize about Christ? How is his broken body intended to unite his followers with one another, as well as to unite them with him? Why is the broken bread distributed to those who shall believe and be baptized in my name? 3 Nephi 8, Paragraph 6 Does the order matter? Can a person be baptized before they believe, later come to believe, and then receive the sacrament correctly? Or must they come to believe first, then receive baptism second, before it is proper to partake of the sacrament? The Lord's commandments are simple. They can be done by anyone. But they are specific and should be followed in the same manner the Lord instituted them. This is the straight path that he says is narrow and as few that find it. 3 Nephi 13, paragraph 2. Perhaps it is not found, because men and women proceed with inexactitude to do what he has laid out before them with exactness. The sacrament should be taken in the way God commanded. Partake of the sacrament in your families and in your gatherings. Christ commanded it. Follow the pattern in 3 Nephi 8, paragraphs 6-7 and Moroni 4, paragraph 1. Kneel down with the church is how the scriptures direct it to be done. Moroni 4, paragraph 1 and Joseph Smith History Part 16, paragraph 24. Use wine. If you are opposed to alcohol or have a medical condition that prevents you from using wine, use red grape juice. Use the symbol of the blood of our Lord. Red wine is bitter for a reason. 
Drinking the bitter wine in remembrance of his blood is symbolic and appropriate. Grape juice changes, through fermentation, into something that affects the senses. The crushed grape, like blood spilled and then allowed to ferment, is a symbol of the great work of the Lord. Only one who has authority is to bless the sacrament. This suggests something about the sanctity of the sacrament when it is performed in the correct manner. It should be viewed as a higher ordinance because of the more exclusive reservation of the power conferred by the Lord. This should say something about the manner in which all ought to proceed when blessing and partaking of the sacrament. The disciples partook first, and after having partaken, they passed it to the multitude. This illustrates the practice of receiving it before being able to pass it to others. It is not possible to pass along what has not first been received. This is true of all the Lord's ordinances. It is one of the reasons Alma rebaptized himself the instant he first began to baptize others. See Mosiah 9, paragraph 8. Those who bless are to be sanctified by partaking, then they pass the sacrament as sanctified ministers. Those who are passing are not more important than the others, but they need to be purified first, so that those to whom they minister may receive the ordinance from those who are already clean. If the priest performing the sacrament ordinance gets a word wrong or adds a word while pronouncing the blessing, he should repeat the entire sacrament prayer. This shows one's willingness to follow the ordinance with exactness. It should be performed in every particular as the Lord has instructed. When it is performed this way, the promise of having his spirit to always be with them is realized. He gave unto the disciples and commanded that they should eat. And when they had eaten and were filled, he commanded that they should give unto the multitude. And when the multitude had eaten and were filled. 3 Nephi 8, Paragraph 6 The disciples ate until they were filled. Does this mean their stomachs were sated? Does it mean their souls were affected? Does it mean both? How were they filled by partaking of the bread? Did they need to first be filled themselves before they would be permitted to minister to others? Was that why the Lord required them to first partake, then be filled, before they were commanded to minister to the others? When they ministered to the multitude, what was it they gave to the multitude? Was it the bread alone? Was it also something that had filled them? And then the multitude takes part in eating the bread and were filled. This raises the question of how they were filled. Were their stomachs filled because of the amount they ate? Did they eat until they were filled, or did they get filled on just a small amount of bread? Or was this a spiritual filling where each heart was touched and each person's countenance before the Lord filled with light? The sacrament is intended to be a testimony unto the Father that ye do always remember him. 3 Nephi 8, paragraph 6 This is again identified as a witness unto the Father rather than a witness unto anyone else. Moroni 4, paragraph 1 It is not even a witness unto Christ, nor is it a witness unto one another. It is a witness unto the Father. The act of testifying is not composed merely of the act of eating the bread. To actually testify to the Father, one must first repent. Second, be baptized.
Third, receive the bread after it has been properly blessed with power. And fourth, remember his body and the ten things symbolized through it, namely, his body as a testimony of life, obedience, sacrifice, cruelty, forgiveness, death, resurrection, immortality, power, and glory. Remembering his life means remembering all that is associated with it. This is the acceptable sacrifice the Father will receive as a testimony of Christ. When the sacrament is performed in this way, they will receive power to have his spirit to be with them. The sacrament also reminds one of the promised wedding feast. In addition to remembrance of Christ's shed blood and slain body, it foreshadows a final feast with the Lord to celebrate his success in redeeming those who accept his invitation. These are simple steps. They are possible to be performed. When they are, the Father receives the act as a testimony before him of the truth that you do always remember his Son. It will be recorded in heaven and will be a witness for your salvation in the day of judgment. Since the result is to have his Spirit to be with you, it should be a simple matter to determine by reflection if you have his Spirit as your companion. If you can feel that he is always with you, then you have an acceptable testimony to the Father. If you do not, then perhaps you should revisit the steps he has provided to see what you might improve. Having Christ's Spirit to be with you is significant enough proof that you should know the truth of the matter. Since you know the means by which to judge, see that you judge the matter correctly. Note the prayers all refer to Christ's Spirit. This is something apart from the Holy Ghost. It is Christ's Spirit which is to always be with them. Having Christ's Spirit always with you is more intimate than touching His side, hands, and feet. This is to have His Spirit within your touch at all times. You become an extension of Him, properly taking His name upon you. For you are then, indeed, a Christian. He will christen or anoint you, not with the symbol of oil, but with the reality of his spirit. This anointing is the real thing, of which the oil was meant only to testify. The Holy Ghost was intended to become a companion at the time of baptism. The Spirit of Christ is intended to become a companion in your very person as well. When there are two members of the Godhead represented in your living person, then it is the Father who receives this testimony of you, about you, by you, and for you. You become His, for these three are one.